hear me. А вы что, собираетесь на ней жениться? Да. Ух, красота-то какая. Лепота. Таможня дает добро. Я вообще не называю меня, пожалуйста, Вероника. Кто я? Вот кто я? Отныне русские земля единый быть. Hi, my name's Ali, and this is the Rus Files Unite podcast, where we watch Russian films and films with a Russian connection. As always, I'm joined by a guest, and today my guest is Michelle Birdie. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, Ellie. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for coming on. Um, so, before we talk about the film we're going to be watching today, uh, if you wouldn't mind, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am an American, as you can tell, and I was born and raised in upstate New York in kind of a joke city. Schenectady. Oh yes, yes. Because there's 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 a movie called, which I didn't realize until I knew that there was a that there was a place. I was kind of like, that's a weird title for a movie. Schenectady, uh, New York, which is yeah, yeah, sort of based on that joke. I know. Yes, um, yeah. There's another recent movie called Beyond the Pines, which is what Schenectady means in the native language. Oh, okay, I should have figured it was a Native American yeah, word. Yeah, yeah, Schenectady. Anyway, I was born in upstate New York, but my parentage is um, grandparents are from this part of the world. This part of the world being uh, being the former Russian Empire and the former Austro-Hungarian Empire. Okay, gotcha. Uh huh. My parents were born in the states, but all my grandparents came from the south. My mother's family came from Ukraine, and my father's family came from the Transcarpathians. She was Ukrainian. He was a Lemko. It's a very small ethnic group. I was going to say I have not even heard of no, that ethnic group. I know the only place it's very pleasant for me to be is in Ukraine, where in the first place, as soon as they say a Lemko, they know who the Lemkos were, but huh. they also know what to do with my last name, which is they just spell it in Ukrainian, and everybody knows it as a normal sort of Lemko last name. But in any case, my parents were first-generation Americans who wanted to become real Americans, and we did not speak Russian at home. They were they stopped being, you know, Nastya and Ivan and became Stacia and John. Mm. Um, but it still was kind of a Slavic household. Um, my mother, you know, cooked vareniki and kulichi in Pascha, and you know they would make kalbasa and all of that kind of thing. And I was curious about roots, so I started studying Russian and got hooked because you either get hooked or you get not hooked. You really 
people seem to either really love Russia and Russian literature, or they just absolutely can't stand it. And I was one of the people who just loved it. So I came over here the first time in 1975 on a short trip. And then I came back to study for a semester in 1978 at the Pushkin Institute of Russian Language. Um, I wanted to become a Russian translator. I have no idea why I wanted to do that because I didn't (laughs) know any translators. I'd never translated. I studied a little bit with somebody in college. There was at that time almost no place you went to go to learn how to be a translator. Um, Mm. Plus the fact that, you know, Russian is hard and learning it in college. (laughs) Famously. Yeah, Yeah. I know, famously. I could read, you know, Akhmatova. I could read Tolstoy. I could read just about anybody. And I could talk about 19th century literature. But I couldn't actually speak to people about normal things, you know. (laughs) And I was completely thrown off on the street. Когда люди... You know, and <laughs> like, they, like they sounded on the tapes. Like they sounded on the tape in the language lab. Or, you know, the joke was, uh, And then you come here and you realize that nobody has said that since like 1924. <laughs> um, and they're like, You know, and I, you know, I just had a really, really hard time. I remember having kind of a headache for the first six months and walking around with a little pocket dictionary and, and you know, humiliating myself constantly. But I wanted <laughs> to stay longer. And there were a couple of Soviet publishing houses that hired foreigners. They hired us as what they called stylisti, stylists, which makes it sound like we were hairdressers. <laughs> but we were actually editors. And I ended up working at Against Vipchati Novosti, APN, which um, produced uh, Soviet, the Soviet Union, one of those glossy magazines, and Soviet Woman, as I recall. And then they produced a daily digest of news for the diplomatic corps. And there were translators, Russian translators, who would translate the diplomatic stuff and the other articles into English, and then we would correct them. And we had very specific, you know, 20 pages a day kind of editing, that sort of thing. And at first, it took a while to get used to it. And then after all, after a while, you know, you could practically edit it without looking at it. But sometimes there, what we kind of lived for were the slightly obscene mistakes that some people would make, <laughs> you know, it was sort of <laughs> kind of cheered you up. When I was in Moscow, most of the time I was there, I was an English language teacher. And you know, not being terribly mature, every time someone would say, I feel myself happy. Oh, uh, <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> yes. And we uh, always have that problem. You know, they would learn British English, so they would say, sort of, I, I'll come over and knock you up. And then we'd sort of, ha, ha, ha. But that's very <laughs> funny to Americans. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's like passed into 
that archaism in in this country like you would never hear anyone saying possibly because we know what it means in, in american english at yeah. this point well back then those were the kinds of most of the people had studied british english so mm. um <clears throat> yes there's a certain even when i was in moscow there was a snobbery that british english was the was the proper version and you know the American English was this kind of uh, ill-begotten kind of bastard child, which is actually, if I'm honest, is is kind of the attitude uh, one picks up growing up here. But uh, being married to an American is, <laughs> has changed listeners. your perspective. But <laughs> yes. what I also find even today is a lot of Russians almost think it's two separate languages. And I always mm. say, you know, I have British friends and we communicate without any particular problem. And I wrote an entire 30,000 word guidebook for a British publishing house and we didn't have any problem. Um, but they really kind of think it's like Russian and Belarusian or something like that. They really yeah. don't understand that it's pretty much the same language with some variations. But they're very sort of particular. They're very particular about British English. Um, <laughs> anyway, I did that for uh, four years, I guess, um, and came back in 1982. And so then just, just as the uh, Cold War was really heating heating back up i guess well no it really started with 1979 in afghanistan mm. oh, that true, was of yeah that yeah. was when all the cultural exchanges and all of that got stopped again everyone started throwing each other's diplomats out I'm yeah guessing. yeah all of that kind of nonsense anyway i spent a couple of years in new york and then I started coming back um, about for half the year, especially when Glasnost took off and there were lots and lots of exchanges and I did a lot of consecutive and then simultaneous interpreting for groups and people and visitors. And that was actually a wonderful period. Everybody was truly interested in each other. And there was an awful lot of money for an awful lot of different kinds of activities. And for a while in the late 80s and early 90s, I had apartments both in Moscow and in New York. And then starting in 1992, I just have had an apartment in Moscow. Gotcha. What an amazing time time to be there yeah yeah certainly not for the faint-hearted uh either you know it's the 90s are i think this terribly misunderstood decade mm. on the one hand it was incredibly tumultuous and people did lose a lot of their savings you know they they went through currency reforms and i never i was always you know stuck with a bag full of cash that was completely devalued um, and I couldn't do anything with it at all. And it was a very confusing time. That said, it really was a very free time. And there really were a lot of opportunities for people who w could take them. Unfortunately, there weren't a lot of opportunities for people who worked in businesses and factories and so forth that were going under and essentially had, you know, been loss making for decades. Um, so it was a huge time of change. 
Yeah, and companies that really weren't producing necessarily the best quality products, but, you know, they had, up until then had had a kind of a captive market that's kind of like, well, this is the kind of stuff that you have. And it's it's even come up in some of the films we watched, like... Uh, I think it was in Prisoner of the Caucasus, aka uh-huh. a, a kidnapping Caucasian style, when they're they're talking about a Finnish fridge, and they're like, "Oh, that would be great." Yeah, that's part of the kind of yeah. part of the deal, just because there's yeah. yeah this perception that stuff that's made outside of the Soviet Union is it, it is going to be so much kind of higher quality. Um, Which was pretty much true at the time, with Mm. certain exceptions, of course. I mean, there was always a lot of equipment, machine building equipment that, frankly, I don't know very much about. And I think Mm. it was kind of old fashioned, but worked very well. So that was perfectly fine. And there was also a lot of very high quality, you know, hand work. For example, for years, each ballerina had shoes handmade for her mm. um, at the Bolshoi and at the Marinsky Theater, the Kirov, as it was called then. Um, you know, and they were just beautifully, beautifully made and very complicated process. So that always actually existed. But, you know, for example, in the 90s, I worked and the end of the 80s, I worked a lot in documentary film. And one of the places we went to was Ivanova, which used to be this textile industry headquarters of the entire Soviet Union. And they, you know, they had these huge, huge textile factories. Um, and the designs were pretty old fashioned. And I knew some artists who used to do the designs and they always had like the ones that they wanted to sell the companies, but the companies would always choose the kind of old, you know, wallpaper designs that, as one of my friends said, looks like your grandfather's pajamas, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, the fabric quality was okay, even if the designs were really kind of old-fashioned, and the colors, the dyes weren't very good. But all the cotton came from Uzbekistan, And when the Soviet Union fell apart, the Uzbeks figured, I mean, they found out very quickly that they could sell it to Turkey or to China or someplace else for five or six times the amount they were selling it to Russia. So they Mm -hmm. just stopped selling it. And Ivanova, you know, they, they didn't have any materials to work with. And it was just a terrible time period. But it's it's hard. The country was also kind of was actually bankrupt. So it was very difficult to figure out how to solve all of these endless problems. It was, you know, it was a very, very difficult time. But for a lot of people in a lot of places, it was also a time of being able to start a business and being able to work at home or work a couple of jobs or, you know, do all kinds of things that they had never been able to do during the Soviet period. Yeah, it almost seems like it seemed to be if you were going to do do well in the in the kind of the new Russia, part of it was would would be age and part of it would be would be mindset you know like if if you were in your say your 40s already it would probably be really really tough but if you were um maybe you know in your early early 20s perhaps it, it was a bit 
easier to you know to find your feet maybe uh, I mean I don't know yeah I don't know because I know some people who were in their 40s and had pent-up ambition mm. and they actually did very very well okay. and I remember one time being picked up you know the way you used to catch a cab in Moscow is you would just stand on the side of the road and stick your hand out and whoever wanted to make some extra money would stop and you'd hop in and it's yeah yeah I, I, I did that not very often, probably only a couple of times in my very first year. Is that not really any something that happens anymore at this point? Not now, because now there's all these Yandex, Uber, Get, you know, City Mobile and things like that. Um, but at the time, that was the way you did it. And I remember mm. getting in the car with, it was like a Zaporozhets or something like that, or an old, you know, Kapeka, what they call the old Zhiguli, the first model Fiat. Um, and it was, you know, a pensioner, a guy who looked like he was in his 60s or 70s. And we started chatting and I said, and how are you managing? And he's like, I'm doing great. I'm, you know, I live out at my dacha. Um, during the summer, I grow things. I come into the city, I sell them. Um, when I need extra money, I come into the city and I drive around and give people rides and act like a taxi driver. Uh, during the winter, I make, I can't remember what he made. Was it like little um, brooms or something like that, something, and then he would sell them. And for him, you know, he's this, this sort of energetic, go-getter kind of guy. And he said, and nobody's going to put me in jail for this. You know, he, so he thought it was just wonderful. But of course, a lot of other people don't have that or didn't have that attitude. And it was really, really difficult for them. Yeah, kind of all the certainties that you'd kind of grown up expecting were suddenly not not around anymore. Yeah, not there. And it's also very, the government made a number of choices that now looking back were not good choices. And oddly enough, one of the choices was they didn't want to frighten people. I mean, mm. the, they really, the Soviet Union really had been bankrupt and Russia really didn't have any money. And in the first months, they were terrified that they would not be able to keep the heat on or the lights on or the trains running. And here, you know, this first sort of free Russian government would preside over the complete collapse of the new Russian Federation. Every night they would meet in the Kremlin and they would talk about, they had people who would, it was called the Grain Commission, and people would say, okay, we've got enough grain in Kazan for three weeks, but we're running low in Ufa. There's a little bit of extra someplace, and they would move grain around just so that there would be bread in all parts of Russia. But they didn't want to tell people how bad it was because they didn't want to frighten them. And so as a result, there's this sort of kind of belief like, oh, it was just splendid in the Soviet Union, and then everybody came along and wrecked it, as opposed to the place had gone completely belly up. And, you know, they were trying their best, but nobody really knew how to do this. Yeah, it was kind of like it was hanging on for years, basically being stuck together with with kind of gaffer tape. Um, yeah. And that 
only works for so long. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, at some point, you know, I would say I would love to spend my retirement writing the history of the 1990s. It really is a terribly understudied era. People just think they know what happened and they know what it's like, but it was much more complex and with kind of everybody making terrible mistakes and some criminally terrible decisions but also kind of saving people in a lot of ways that I think people don't quite understand. So Yeah, I mean it was it was something that I I guess growing up when I did and just meeting people like roughly my age and a little bit younger in Moscow when I first first got there, I realized I didn't have a clue about how difficult a time people had had when you know mm-hmm. I was growing up in Britain in the in the 90s which was you know really a pretty good time to be to be growing up in in Britain you know all told mm-hmm. I mean especially especially towards the end of the 90s when the the troubles uh, in Northern Ireland came to an end so you were mm-hmm. kind of no longer you know getting bomb scares every so often actually um kind of winding the conversation a little bit yes back how did your family feel about your decision to uh, to move out to the the then soviet union i mean i guess having the family tie they probably uh or maybe understood a little bit better than they would have done if they'd been you know many generations of uh, yeah. <laughs> american i suppose so my mother um, I think understood it well because she was a nurse and when she had been in nursing school, she had wanted to go to Alaska. Um, and when I said, why on earth did you want to do that? And she thought it would be very exciting. It was a frontier, you know, mm. in the late 40s. So I think she understood the allure of um, sort of starting from nothing and making things up as you go. Mm. And she also understood, she always used to say that, you know, like you were just born a Russian. That's just the (laughs) way you sort of turned out. I have an older brother who is not particularly interested in this culture at all. He was much more interested in Far Eastern culture. Mm. Um, My father um, had been a, he was a worrier, so he was worried. There's one in every family, maybe. There's one in, yes, he was very, a serious, very serious worrier. So living in the Soviet Union and then living in Russia in the 90s, you know, gave him an awful lot to worry about. But they came over twice. They came over once in 1980, mm. uh, and we traveled from... Petrozavodsk in the far north all the way down to Georgia. Um, Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was... Quite a contrast. Yeah, no, it was absolutely amazing. And we, for the rest of our, my parents' lives, the uh, standard for a good peach was this one Georgian peach that we had <laughs> bought. And we would always say, oh, that's a really good peach. So then my, you know, there'd be a silence. And then my father would say, but not like those Georgian peaches we had. Uh, and then they came back in 1994 when, you know, it was kind of a new place. Mm. Um, it was kind of a wreck, but sort of working 
its way forward. So they had a sense of the kind of life I was leading. And of course, they felt very comfortable here, you know, because they'd grown up my mother in particular, her first language had been Russian. Mm. Um, my father spoke it very well. They hadn't really spoken it very much in decades, but they could understand what was going on. And, you know, everybody looked familiar to them. It's like, oh, God, doesn't he look like, you know, Ed Garriak who lived down the street? You know, everybody <laughs> they saw looked like somebody they'd known from their childhoods. Oh, wow. And also for them... I kind of, you know, kind of closed the circle because, you know, they'd grown up speaking Russian in very Slavic households. And and then they wanted to become Americanized. And then finally, <clears throat> late in life, I was bringing my Russian friends home. And my mother was once again Anastasia Viktorovna and my father was Ivan Yosefovich. And everybody, you know, it was like their childhood again. And they were artists and they were musicians and... I remember one time a group of friends came up from New York and my mother, as usual, had made this huge spread and lots of vodka. They would always make their own nastoyki. So there was limonovka and malinovka. And one of the guys got terribly drunk and it was just the absolute classic face in the salad bowl routine on the table. And I remember sort of looking at my mother thinking, "Okay, this probably has gone too far. And she had like (laughs) tears in her eyes. And she said, oh, it's just like it was in my childhood. You know, she was, <laughs> <laughs> it was so happy, you know. <laughs> so for them, it was weird, but it was almost um, a way for them, their Russianness or their Slavic backgrounds was very kind of parochial and something they wanted to grow out of. And then they, at the end of their lives, kind of rediscovered everything that was good and interesting and creative and wonderful about it. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Uh, That's sort of reminding me of something that I kind of came across in... uh, Jeffrey Hosking did a series of the Wreath Lectures uh, for the BBC in like the late 80s, and, and he was talking about with the sort of whirlwind urbanization of the Soviet Union, you know, you went from a country that was nearly exclusively rural, apart from the, you know, handful of major cities to being much more urbanized, and that so many people would be moving to the moving to the towns, and in order to kind of fit in and get along, they kind of almost pretended like they were never from the the villages because that yeah. was you know and, and it even kind of comes up a, a bit in um moscow doesn't believe in tears oh yeah yeah which obviously being being set in set in the 50s so it's kind of interesting that some of that was going on in the american uh context as well sure particularly because you know they were from small villages you know peasant mentality for example i could never figure this out completely because mm. it wasn't like they were thinking of the crimean war but my mother's parents wouldn't let her become a nurse because oh. they said being a nurse was like being a prostitute 
you know, and it really was like, did you hear the stories about Florence Nightingale and the, you know, the hangers on in the army or something? I just could not ever figure out where that came from. Hmm. Um, So she had to earn money for it and put herself through school. They wouldn't do it. Um, Mm. Later, you know, they accepted it. And I think they were even quite proud of her. But it was a very... Oh, you know, very it's it was real village mentality. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Well, where, where do we even go for, go from there? Cause, uh, where do we go from there? We're, we're sort of uh, nominally <laughs> film program. I mean, we've uh, just mentioned uh, Moscow Doesn't Believe in Tears just then. Well, actually, that was a film from almost the same time period. I think it was made yes. just a, a few years before. So, um, Michelle, what film have you uh, brought along for us to watch? Well, we're going to watch Slujebny Raman, uh, which is actually one of my favorite films, partially because I did work in um, a Soviet publishing house. And one of the things I love about the film is the presentation of, you know, the collectif, you know, this group of people you worked with. In my case, they had foreigners who came in and worked as these editors. But basically, in that time period, you started working someplace and you worked there your whole life. So it was like, a family to you and there were people you liked and there were people who you thought were terrible gossips and there were affairs and there were marriages that broke up um, and there were celebrations and people would bring their kids in. There wasn't much incentive to switch places that you worked because salaries never changed. I mean, an engineer got 120 rubles a month And that was pretty much it. Mm, So mm -hmm. wherever you started working, chances are you were going to work your whole life there. And people would come in in the mornings and during the winter, women would wear extra heavy woolen tights. So they would all come in and the door would be shut and there would be everybody wiggling out of their tights. <laughs> so they would be in their stockings and getting rid of their boots and putting on their high heels. And then because your hair is all smashed down under your hat, everyone pulls out their mirrors and they redo their makeup and they redo their hair. And um, you pull out your coffee cups and your little heater thing. What do you call those things? The You know, the cup what do they call it? immersion heater things? Do you remember those where you would put I it in a cup and it would boil the water? Those, to be, yeah, to be everybody honest. had those, and occasionally <laughs> we had little plug-in kettles as well. And you sort of start the day having some tea and sort of chatting about things, and then you know about ten thirty or eleven o'clock, you'd go out and have a cigarette, and then you kind of get down to work. And it was a very it was like being with a very, like, that was your village, or that was your extended family. And people at lunchtime would scatter to buy food. And that was the one thing that was absolutely <laughs> sacred. You know, the boss would come in, whereas Nina Vasilyevna, Oh, okay. You know, tell her to come see me when she gets back. We yeah. would all divide up 
the tasks. One person would go to the bulishnaya for bread for everybody. One person would go to the dairy store to pick up whatever we could possibly find. Um, downstairs, the cafe also sold meat on the side. Um, oh, really? And you would go down <laughs> and stand in line. Like half the day was spent actually sort of shopping. Yeah, in that Jeffrey Hosking lecture series, I remember him very vividly describing things as being rationed by the queue or yes. rationed by the line. Yeah, uh. yeah. and you would, you, there was a limit to how much you could buy, one person could buy, or you would be walking down the street. I remember in particular, uh, lemons appeared two or three times a year. Bananas, oh, wow. basically once a year. Mm. And I saw a line, what are they selling? lemons. Oh, great. <laughs> Got to get in line. Stand in line. And then there's this weird thing where the closer you get, the more people smash together. And then everyone starts getting nervous because it's like an hour standing in line. What if they run out of them? And they would say, you know, how many are they giving out? Only a kilogram for each person. Oh, no, maybe I won't make it. And there's this sort of crack as they would pull up another big kind of crate of lemons and and slap it down on the table and weigh it and get it. And you get there and it's like, oh, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? <laughs> and then you get your kilogram of lemons and you put it in your string bag and you walk down the street and people stop you. Oh, where did you get those lemons? And you're like, ha ha. Two and a half hours, I stood in line for these lemons. They're almost gone. Oh, uh -huh. no. And people sort of run off. There was a tremendous amount of time we spent on that. But in any case, this idea of your workplace as being a little village, a big apartment house, something like that, is very clear with all of the... Also, somebody was selling a pair of boots. If you saw something on sale, it wasn't your size. It didn't matter. If you had the money, you would buy it and then sell it to somebody else. Oh, yeah. Yeah, trade it for something else that you, that you Absolutely. wanted. Absolutely. Yeah. So there was this constant... People would come in and say, what size are you? I have a really nice, you know, sweater that's from Finland, or I have a mm. lovely, I, I saw some French cosmetics on sale. And, you know, and there, so the, the, it was kind of this marketplace as well that was going on. Yeah, sort of ironically, people had to be quite entrepreneurial in order to get stuff. Exactly, exactly. So that was going on. And then there were you know, people having affairs, people not liking each other, somebody flirted with her husband at some party, and they weren't <laughs> talking for three years. I remember oh, we had first worked in one space on uh, Pushkin Square, and then we moved to what had been the um, press center during the Olympics, uh, that's on Zubovsky Boulevard. And when we had been in the first place, it was just one big room with, I don't know, almost 30 desks in it. And as you recall, buildings are always overheated. And oh, in particular, goodness, yes. <laughs> for women of a certain age, um, say, having, yeah. you know, heat flashes, hot flashes, um, they needed to cool off constantly. And there was this constant twice a day, and they would open all the windows and we would all go out in the corridor and 
the men would grumble about some middle-aged woman who was going through menopause and it was driving them nuts because they had work to do and she was always hot and we had to freeze the room constantly. You know, it was oh, wow. this so big you had kind the thermostat of thermostat wars even back then in Oh god, yes. Absolutely. It was a very familial kind of relationship with all the uh, ups and downs that go with that. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that's partially the kind of background to understanding how how the relationships in this big office work. It's a some kind of statistical firm, something like that company. Gotcha. Right. And um, yeah, in terms of the English title, so it tends to come out here as being office uh, romance, but um, I stumbled upon your obituary for the director, uh, Eldar Rizanov, uh-huh. and I think you'd you'd called it office affair instead. Yeah, that, yeah. Sort of a slightly... well, because a roman is an affair. Um, mm. That's what it is, and there are actually well, I won't spoil it for you, but it is all about love affairs. Okay, so, oh, uh, plural, haha, interesting. Yeah. We'll have to keep our eye out for that then. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm quite excited to see this one. I, I couldn't quite believe that I'd only actually seen one full Eldar Rizana film, because it feels like I've seen more of them. I've, I've only seen, well, you can probably guess which one I've seen. <laughs> Irony of Fate, which we actually uh-huh. covered on the, on the podcast. And weirdly, the first one I ever saw was a tiny sliver of the i think it's called something like the extraordinary adventures of italians in russia yeah yeah that was a fun one as well yeah on on the tv in some like restaurant i was in in like my first year over there (laughs) yeah yeah, it's it's sort of quite a like caper uh movie Mm -hmm. um and then a what I hadn't realised is that the hero in this is uh, is the same actor, Andrei Mikov, who was Genia in Irony of Fate. I did not recognise him from the poster, I have to say. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, he does. Well, he there's lots of transformations mm. in this um, film. So oh, he does so change we, we a bit. We all like a, a makeover montage. That's a very much a Hollywood uh, sort yeah, of romantic comedy cliche. Definitely. And there... At the time this movie came out, there, uh, particularly the woman who plays the main role, um, Friedlich, um, she starts off no makeup, hair brushed back, horrible suit. And everybody thought it was this incredibly heroic acting job that she was willing to make herself so ugly and unattractive to play this role. Um, (laughs) But her acting, the acting actually is just kind of spectacular throughout. Mm, Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing her in a a role where she gets a bit more to do because I the very first uh, episode of this podcast I I watched Stalker yeah and she, she has is, a very small role yeah yeah and she doesn't get very much to do besides have a bit of a a fit on the on the floor I mean she gets a good like little soliloquy as well towards the end but yeah it's um. <laughs> Not the not the best role. I think people have mentioned uh, that uh, Tarkovsky wasn't always the greatest at uh, 
uh, giving women in his films something to do. Yeah, it's um, true. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, excellent. We should probably crack on with with watching the film. Um, okay. And there is a thing that we that we say uh, every time, and the thing that we say is "payechli." And mm-hmm. uh, as a uh, <laughs> long-time translator, I think I'm going to pass the explanation of the word over to you, Michelle, if you wouldn't mind. Well, basically, what it means is, "Let's go. We're off. Let's get yes. going." Um, and it's well i don't i'm going i want to say that it's made most famous by yuri gagarin but that's i'm not quite sure that's true but when he was ready to be launched into space god bless him he said bye <laughs> you know and it had this kind of you know let her rip let's go um we're out of here it was very confident and even a little bit cocky and so kind of slangy for this extraordinary thing that he was just about to do yeah yeah i love the contrast between that and one small step for man because yes. or, or as it should have been a man <laughs> because that is so much a you know this is a momentous well for want of a better word moment yeah. so we better have something <laughs> prepared to say <laughs> whereas Gagarin the, the was like Pai let's go you know let me get out of here let's I'm out of here yeah <laughs> uh and and you listen to his voice it's absolutely excited and looking forward to it totally fearless just sort of an amazing amazing person anyway so Pai Pai <laughs> Michelle and I have just watched Office Romance, or as we uh, learned to call it last time, Office Affair. Uh And before we talk about what we thought of it, we're just going to have a quick summary of the plot from Michelle. So if you haven't watched it yet and you don't want uh, spoilers, this is the time to, if you haven't already, pause the podcast, go away and watch the film, and then come back and enjoy the rest of the episode spoiler-free. Okay, spoiler alert issued. Over to you, Michelle. Okay, so it begins with Moscow in 1978, and it follows a bunch of people and the metro and all of that sort of commotion. And you see everybody rush into this statistical agency where you hear a voice describing the various people who work there. It is headed by a woman director played by Alisa Friedlich. Um, and she's got absolute mannish uh, kind of director. In fact, at some point, somebody says, you know, is your director a woman or what is she or something? And they say she's like a director. She's not a woman at all. Hair back, no makeup, thick glasses, wears the same blue shirt and kind of um, dull brown jacket all the time. Yes, it was interesting watching a film from the 70s and going, okay, so the brown and orange 
thing that was going on in the West was also happening <laughs> behind yes. the Iron Curtain. Yes, it was a very brown, yellow, and orange time period. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, there is another character, Anatoly Novosiltsev, who is um, works in the accounting department which is actually very unusual. That was usually a woman's domain. Mm. Um, and he's also very unusual because his wife left him for another man and he went to court and kept the two sons. So he is raising these two young boys by himself. So there's kind of uh, defiance of gender expectations yes. on both sides. Yes. Uh-huh. You've got this mannish woman heading the organization and you've got this kind of womanish man um, in the organization. There is also a secretary, Vera, who knows absolutely everything that's going on. As all good secretaries should. <laughs> as all good secretaries should. And it also begins with a description of her as making uh, the salary of a secretary, but dressing like somebody who spent all of her life abroad or something like that. She's very good <laughs> at sort of buying things from one hand to the other, constantly looking um, for the stylish thing to wear. There's a funny bit where she's looking at a pair of boots and she asks her boss, um, the very mannish director, what do you think of them? And the boss says, "Mm, I think they look a little bit too um, showy. And Vera says, okay, got to take them then. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, in the very beginning of this also, we are introduced to a new worker or a new per- employee who has come in from working abroad. Um, this is the very handsome actor Oleg uh, Basilashvili, who plays um, uh, kind of the assistant director, who doesn't actually work an awful lot, but sort of swans around looking handsome and passing out Marlboro cigarettes. Um, generally being... Looking authoritative. Yes, exactly. And then there is another very sweet woman um, who had gone to school with both Novoselsev and Yura, this handsome fellow, um, and had had a fling with him way back when. And she kind of falls in love with him again. And she writes him love letters that get passed on to him through Vera. And there's another character named Shura (laughs) at the beginning of it, as they're sort of describing who everyone is. The voice says that Shura is a very nice person, but unfortunately, she's very active. She got involved with um, the uh, trade union activities early on, and they can't get her out of it. So she spends the whole time kind of running around saying, I need 50 kopecks for such and such. You know, there are children starving in Africa. We're doing a collection. Um, And uh, all of this, at the beginning of the movie, you also see a little bit of what I had talked about earlier, of this sort of sense of it being kind of a big village, this organization or a big kind of family where everybody comes filing in in the morning and all the young women sit down or all the women sit down and the first thing they do is they open up their purses and they take out their makeup and their little hand mirrors and everybody puts on their makeup and sort of does their hair and gets ready for the day. What we see in the film is this Novoselsev who can barely make ends meet with his two kids, is encouraged to try to ask for a raise. 
and he can't bring himself to do it. Um, and uh, the Yura character, played by Oleg uh, Basilashvili, um, has a party at his house, and Novoselov gets terribly drunk. Um, and ends up insulting the director, the Friedrich character. The next day, he goes in to apologize to her, and they kind of open up to each other. She starts crying. She feels like he was. He thought she was just horrible and and a dried up old maid. And then she says, "But actually, I work too many hours because I don't have a life outside this organization." And they start to kind of get to know each other. They get to know each other enough that um, uh, Ludmila Prokofievna Kalugina, that's the name of the director, decides that maybe she should up her style a little bit. And there's this very funny scene Oh yeah, <laughs> where she pulls Vera aside. First she asks her, first she pretends that she has a, um, a relative coming in from a town outside Moscow. And this relative wants to know, um, you know, what's stylish this, these days? So Vera starts telling her, she's like, a blazer. And she writes it, what's that? Oh, it's like, you know, a jacket, a club jacket. Okay, she writes this down. They go in another room and she wants to know how she should behave and look a little bit more flirtatious. So Vera says, the first thing you have to do is learn how to walk. And she does this very funny invitation of her sort of clomping across the room. Oh, yeah. It's really mean, it's, but it's kind ve- of spot It's on. very mean. But, and then she goes into this Put you, but a woman walks head up, eyes down, shoulders back, chest forward, and she walks from her hips freely like a panther waiting to pounce. And then you see <laughs> this poor Kaluga to try to do it. The first time she does it, Vera's like, well, you look like a call girl. You know, she can't get it straight <laughs> yeah. at all. This is this hilarious scene. Um, anyway, this sort of, th- this continues on with these kind of subplots of uh, the other woman sending love letters to the guy who had been in Europe and uh, Novoseltsev and Kalugana beginning to kind of get involved a little bit or being sort of friendlier to each other. Um, and at one point, the Yura character decides that he just doesn't want these love letters anymore. So he goes to Shura who is part of the Profsayuz, you know, the trade union. And in the old days, this is another slight sort of play on gender roles, because um, in the old days, if a woman's husband was cheating on her, she would go to the to the Profsayuz, the mm. trade union. Uh, okay, and they would have right. a whole meeting and they would say, you know, Ivan, Ivanich, this is terrible. You have to be a family man. You can't do this, that kind of stuff. So he goes to Shura and he and he he wants her to he wants her to read these love letters that he's been sent. And he says, you know, can't you talk to her about it? You know, maybe if the um uh the community you know, deals with this. She'll understand that she really shouldn't be doing this. And you actually see that everybody has figured out what's going on and the young women are kind of sneering at this poor woman who's close to 40 um, and has a family but sort of is looking for this last fling. And 
There's this one scene where Novoseltsev hears about this, and he slaps this guy across the face. And uh, Kalugina, the director, is very impressed by this because it's clear that Novoseltsev has a sense of honor and knows what's right and wrong. Um, Towards the end of the movie, she invites him over for dinner, and she's all dressed up, and he's all nervous, and they have... For all the um, there's you know slightly slapstick aspects of the film, there's also a lot of scenes where the dialogue is just absolutely perfect, and mm. you have two incredibly nervous people having the most ridiculous dialogue <laughs> over you know um, uh, would you like red wine or white? Uh, or white, uh, or red. I can go either way. I, I like a little wine. Wine is very good. Yes, I like wine too. You know, they have this just absolutely uncomfortable, ridiculous <laughs> yeah. situation. And we, at the end of it, it looks like they have gone off into the bedroom, we think, or something like that. Something they clearly have already kissed and they've sort of confessed their interest to each other. The next day, she comes into the office, you know, a changed woman. She's got her hair done. She's wearing makeup. She's wearing a dress. She sits down and sort of gossips a little bit with Vera. They talk about how both of them were kind of, you know, not the easiest people in the world, but they're going to be best girlfriends now. And in the middle of this, this um, the dreadful Yuri Grigorovich comes in, and he tells her that actually Novoselsev had wanted, again, there's this kind of, you know, sort of typical notion of being a busybody woman kind of womanish, you know, where he squeals and he says, um, actually, Novoselsev uh, really just wanted a raise from you. And that's why he is showing you attention. And it was actually uh, to be put into a position that had opened up, right? As well? Or was it just a raise? Yes, he wanted to be the head of the accounting department and get a slightly higher salary. And she's absolutely heartbroken. So she calls him in and they go through this ridiculous thing where she tries to fire him. He tries to quit. They keep ripping up each other's (laughs) papers. And it gets into something that always just makes me laugh out loud. They get into this ridiculous fight with like their spitting at each other and they're chasing each other around and whacking each over the head with with files and and ripping paper up and throwing it in each other's face and then they go flying outside and Vera is listening to this at the doorway very pleased because of because, course of course <laughs> yes you know of course and they end up at the end of the movie they end up sort of flying out and one of them gets in the car and the other one gets in and they um, you see them kissing and lines appear on the screen that nine months later a third little Nova Seltsev boy was born um, so that's the plot <laughs> it's basically you know boy meets girl boy falls in love with girl all kinds of obstacles but they have a sort of happily ever after at the end wonderful that's a great summary thank you Michelle so my pleasure did you like the film I I thought it was an absolute scream it yes it's really, very really funny fun. yeah <laughs> it's very funny <laughs> It's very kind of sly. I mean, as I said, there's on the one hand, 
he's playing with gender, you know, mm. these sort of you know, kind of extreme. He's this, you know, this womanly man. And there's a very funny thing when he's talking to his kids on the phone. He does just sound like a mom, you know, mm. Vova, put that down. I told you, leave the cat alone. The cat does not want to go in the toilet or whatever it is, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the kids sound like little terrors. Yeah, absolute <laughs> terrors. He's always absolute getting called by, got by, the, by their teacher and just being like, your kid's done this now. <laughs> I know, and he's constantly sort of yelling at them. And you see him outside with an apron on, hanging up laundry on a line in the courtyard of this apartment house they live in. And she is this absolutely kind of mannish um, woman who is not much of a woman at all. And then you have, um, you know, this kind of prima donna man who actually is kind of gossipy and a troublemaker, like the village kind of busybody or something like that. It's actually for all of his handsome, suave manliness, he's actually kind of like a, a nasty old biddy kind of thing. <laughs> Um, and you have, there's also just this very funny, um, there's just, the dialogues are hilarious. And they're very, sometimes they're just very um, human. And sometimes they're a little bit sort of sly. But it's a very, very funny movie. Yeah, uh, in terms of specific lines, there was uh, there was one that I really liked. Uh, I mean, you talked about it in the summary how Lyudmila is consulting her her secretary uh, Verichka mm-hmm. about dressing, and and she basically she says something like, "What are people wearing these days?" Mm-hmm. in in the sense of clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. No. She gets. She's just sort of completely out of it. And there's this other hilarious thing where they think that. One of the people who works there has passed away. Oh, yeah. And when they tell uh, Kalugana that he's died, she says, died? What do you mean died? I didn't make it. I didn't order him. I didn't sign a decree for him to die. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, like, <laughs> so they wow. get this ridiculous thing. Uh, and, then, and then later somebody asks uh, Novoseltsev, how are you doing? And he's like, well, you know, better than dead guy oh i mean he doesn't yes. say dead guy but the de- the dead guy's surname like yes again wow yeah, i know it's very very funny there's also there's um uh there's little bits of sort of life at the time um mm. this constant you know the cigarettes the block uh, do we call it a block no do you call it a block of cigarettes? No. What do you call a it pack. in English? A, a pack. pack. Not yeah. a pack, but well. when it's like a box with 12 or 10 packs in it. Is that oh. a block? Oh, mm. Yeah, I I don't even know. Yeah, <laughs> in Russian it's a block, um, ah, and right. so he pulls out this sort of block of Marlboros, and Vera just completely sort of changes. At first, she's very high and mighty with him, but mm. when the cigarettes come out, you know, she kind of changes everything. The constant selling of this and that, you know, somebody bought a pair of boots someplace, then they're selling them to Vera, and Vera is looking. She's always knitting, sitting in the office knitting the whole time, um, talking on the phone to either her boyfriend or her husband who she's not on very good terms with at one point you see they uh they get uh Novoseltsev and Yuri Grigorovich get into Yuri's car and it's all very nice and it has you know um a radio and they're all kind of ooing and eyeing because of course 
it was very expensive to, mm. to be able to buy a car. But when they get someplace, um, I don't know if you notice this, he takes the windshield wipers off. Did you see that? Or he puts them back again? No, I totally missed that. Is that is that because he was worried that somebody's going to pinch it? Yeah, he's... people stole them all the time. Oh. For years, oh. the, you know, like as soon as you stop the car, I would get out, you know, the, you just automatically take the windshield wipers off. And it was only, you know, mid-90s that people stopped doing it because you could actually buy them. <laughs> yeah, they were easier to get hold of. Yeah, they were much easier the to get same. a hold of. Yeah. Oh gosh! Wow! That, that totally that totally passed me by. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, this is this is a, a very random detail that just uh, going going back. But as we're talking about uh, Yuri and Anatoly uh, Novoseltsev's uh-huh. relationship, when Lyudmila is is talking to to Novoseltsev just after this slapping incident. He says he says something like, you know, I'm a tough guy, and the phrase he uses is, uh, uh, is it Krepki? Yeah, 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 which, yeah which, I'm a tough nut to crack, yeah. which is what they use um, as the translation of the Die Hard movies. Exactly, that was exactly yeah. why that phrase jumped out at me because I because yeah. I knew that, so I totally wanted to make sure I mentioned that yeah, in passing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, while we're on the topic of uh, of language, I mean, you've talked about some stuff or, already, but was there any like particularly juicy linguistic nuggets that that we should know about, especially those of us whose you know Russian is non-existent or not great? <laughs> well, one of the most important words I think is what they call uh, Kalugana, the head of the organization. They call her a mumra, which yeah. is um, you know. A word you don't want to be called if you're no. a woman. It's sort of like an old hag. And and they say, you know, we call her that. And sometimes uh, Vieira would call her staruja, you know, is the, oh, yeah, is the staruja in the office, is the old lady in the office. That's just sort of dreadful. Um, and, and she's supposed to be 36. I mean, it turns out, I looked this up because Carrie uh, and, and I were like, she can't be 36. 36. We looked it up and uh, Alyssa Freindlich was, uh, I think she was 43 at the time, but, mm-hmm. you know, props to the makeup people and, you know, and hair people because they really, you know, <laughs> make a mess of her. Uh, and, and yeah, like you said in, in the in the first part, it's uh, if she were, were a more vain actor, she wouldn't have taken the part. <laughs> yeah, she wouldn't have taken it all. It was considered at the time, it was an extremely popular movie because mm. it was funny and it did sort of show, um, you know, I think it did what you want a great movie to do, mm. which is it reflected real life. But through a slightly cracked mirror, I mean... Yeah, kind of like relatable, but slightly heightened. Yes, exactly. Because nobody was as mannish as that director. Nobody has the kind of transformation that she has. But the whole office, the way the the office was run, that just everybody worked in that office. Everybody knew exactly mm. what that was. And I think it was also an appreciation for... You know, 
sort of slightly making fun of things, you know, mm. showing that to be a big guy on campus kind of thing, all you had to do was have a bunch of Marlboro cigarettes, you know, that this whole notion of, you know, the Soviet Union provides completely for its citizens and they look down upon these dreadful imports from the West, blah, 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 blah. It showed absolutely the opposite. You know? <laughs> Except because they were contraband, everyone wanted yes, them. Yes, everybody wanted them. Um, uh, I mean, of course, uh, Bulgakov has a lot of fun with that in The Master and Margarita. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, they also, in terms of language, they call her the Mumra. And at one point, um, I think it's Vera, of course it's Vera, who calls <laughs> um, Novoseltsev uh, Nida Chopa. Oh, um, well, I, yeah, I missed that one. Yeah, which is a lovely word. And so often, sometimes with slang Russian words... Yiddish is your best mm. <laughs> translation of it. He's kind of a nebbish, you know, he's sort of milk toasty, um, you know, doesn't have a bad word to say about anybody, but not exactly full of initiative, not a go-getter by any means, this kind of nebbishy guy. Um, and then all the jokes at the beginning about these people, um, The the it begins with something like, um, you know, I go to work, um, because work um, you know, sort of makes me more noble. Um, and we work in statistics because if we didn't have statistics, we would have no idea how well we're working. You know, there's this sort of, <laughs> yeah. there's this, the whole thing just pokes very gentle fun at the entire really Soviet system. Oh, one thing that I thought was really funny was the, not exactly constant, but fairly frequent interruptions of the uh, senior management's work. Like a team yes. of people would come in to do something. To do the inventorization. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. then they were going to paint. Yeah, actually, and that was another sort of bit of sort of typical Russian or Soviet life. Everything in offices was numbered and there was a list because you could not steal or harm socialist property in any mm. way. So there they are talking when these guys come in wearing their white coats, go, picking up lamps and going, you know, white table lamp, 47, got it. And then I'm picking up the next thing. Hole punch, number 26, got it, and sort of listing this. And she's absolutely helpless. There's nothing she can do about it. And and was part of that, uh, because at one point, I think it's uh, Sama Khvalov, Yuri, who... Mm -hmm. um, it comments like, why can't you do this at another time? And they're like, well, our working hours are the same as yours. It's, exactly. It's or, 10 or till I think 6. It's, yeah, until I think it's Vera who points that out to them or oh, something like okay. that. Because yes. they come into his office and he's absolutely furious about it. And then Vera says, well, they work the same hours as we do. Yeah. Which I'm, I'm guessing, again, that was a, a, a thing where it's kind of like a, a, a bit of a sop to, well, we don't, we don't, pay you very well but at least the conditions are kind of reasonable in the mm -hmm. we don't make you work on sociable hours um yes yes and as well as you know you see the sort of and there's also constantly people coming in everything she has to sign things constantly um there are people vera is the person who's 
um, not exactly Cerberus, you know, but she's, everyone has to go through Vera. So mm. everybody wants to be good friends with Vera. Yeah, on her good side. And she's the one who can also not let somebody in and make sure she has time by herself for whatever she needs to do. And you see also the constant sort of running around of Shura organizing things. They have to buy this. <laughs> they have to buy that. They go all, uh, they all go out to buy something at lunchtime, I think. Um, again, the sort of sense of your workplace as being sort of half your workplace and just half your home, you know, mm. or the village you live in. Um, and you have the absolute sense that they all know absolutely everything about each other. Absolutely everything. Yeah. Nothing can be hidden. Yeah, I, I felt so, so bad for the, uh, what was her, her Olga. name? Ol- Olga. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And you just, you just think Yuri is, you know, he's such like the, a yes, beast yes. for doing that. Yeah, it's, yeah, he's just awful. And you see the younger women in particular. Again, you know, Rizanov had a very good sense of human nature because mm. it's the younger women who think that will never happen to me. I will never make mm. a fool of myself when I'm getting on 40 mm. over, you know, a handsome man or something like that. And all of them kind of giggling and sneering at her and her being very, very embarrassed because everybody knows what's going on. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, but uh, again, she doesn't have the option really of finding another job someplace, you know, no, it's just very there difficult. you are, and you're going to work there forever. So you just sort of have to get through it. So it's a, I do recommend it to absolutely everyone. It's also just because there's a lot of just kind of almost slapstick humor. What you know, the drunk scenes and the fight scenes. Oh, they're the, absolutely the, hilarious. The the drunk the drunk scene particularly appealed, you know, as I'm sure you're you're well aware, like the British sense of humor is largely based on shame and humiliation. <laughs> so the the bit where he's just he's just you know, behaving completely as the Russians would have it, ni adequatna, uh, uh-huh. ni adequatna, sorry, um, inappropriately. It's just, I was, I was in stitches. It's just like, just, just stop it, just stop it. This is so bad. Um, I know, and it's just awful. And, and Car- Carrie was just cringing. She basically couldn't watch. It was, it was so embarrassing. But no, it was, it's just yeah, awful. But, but it, and he, he's trying to talk, and then he's trying to sing songs, and he's saying, "Shall we oh, talk yeah. about mushrooms?" And yeah, everyone yeah. says, and, "And I'm gonna, and I'm gonna." recite some of the poetry that I made up when I was 20. <laughs> and and like, then no, Mila says, oh, how interesting that you were Pasternak when you were 20. Oh, um, yeah. I know, well, it's that's, just awful. That's worth, that's worth mentioning in, in, in passing because uh, Western listeners probably more would tend to think of Pasternak as a novelist because, you know, obviously Dr. Zhivago, very, very famous, but... Uh, for for Russians, Russians tend to think of him as a poet first and foremost. Yes. Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, am I right in saying that Dr. Zhivago wasn't even published in the Soviet Union until uh, the late 80s during Glasnost because it was less than complimentary about the glorious uh, socialist revolution? Yes. And there, when he was given the Nobel Prize for Literature... 
there's a whole scandal about that because somebody had slipped, they had gotten the book out and had been published in the West first before it was published in the Soviet Union. Yes, he was in very big trouble and in very bad favor for mm. a very long time. Yeah, it was basically internal exile, wasn't it? It just yes. kind of stuck yeah. him at his dacha and said, it's comfortable, but you don't get to go anywhere because yeah. we're watching you like a hawk. Yeah, 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 yeah. And again, that is, you know, it tells you a little bit about those people, that they were well-educated and kind of, you know, of a more liberal bent, that he mm. would recite that poem and that she would know it so well. Mm. Um, these, As I said, it was uh, filled with tiny little, not exactly criticisms, but just fair reflections of what life really was, not the socialist realist version of what mm. life was by any means. Kind of kind of winks to the audience. Yes, which everybody of course got. As mm. well as, as I said, just really I think spectacular acting. You know, you oh, really do yeah. believe for each of those characters, you absolutely even sort of crazy Ludmila Prokofevna you just kind of believe when she starts crying, you know, about not having any friends and not having a life and all of that, you do kind of, you know, you sort of believe her, even mm -hmm. though it's all kind of extreme. And yeah. and Novoseltsev, there's this also funny thing where he goes in to talk to her and he's all nervous. And instead of calling her Lyudmila Prokofievna, he calls her Prokofia Lyudmilovna. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I totally point? missed that, like, Spoonerism. <laughs> it's very... Oh, although that does remind me, there's briefly a scene where he's kind of snuck into her her office and he's sat behind her desk and he's kind of, like, he's playing pretending out her, this little yes. fantasy that he's, that he's the boss and, like, specifically her. And then she comes in and joins in for a little bit, but she's pretending yes. to be him. I thought that was just... It was just... I know, it was very funny. And again, mm. playing... Because he puts her glasses, she has these very thick, mannish glasses, and he sort of puts them on, and she Over comes his in... his rather thick glasses as well, so as it's absolutely well, ludicrous. And, <laughs> and, but it again, they're sort of playing these reversal of roles, the sort of reversal of gender roles and mm. then reversal, kind of double reversal of their gender yeah. roles, where she plays him being this kind of milk toast character. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's a yeah. very, you know, it's a very witty, funny movie. Very, very yeah. funny. Um, and and quite uh, quite lyrical in some of its uh, in some of its choices in terms of music and also the yes. visual stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you cut out all of the because it's quite a long movie it's 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 over, over two, two and a hours. half hours yeah. yeah yeah i mean i meant to look this up but there was a there was an interval in the version that i that i watched so i was kind of like was this originally a tv movie because it looks like the production values look a bit too good for that mm -hmm. so i didn't know whether it was you know went out in two parts or it was at the cinema it but... was at the cinema but they had oh, okay. this weird thing that they used to do mm. which was a feature film was considered a two-part movie Ah, uh, okay. So there there's was, always there, part one, and then there's part two. Of this vintage, yeah. You know, and it's like, um, well, this is way before your time. It's probably <laughs> before you were born. But I remember seeing as a child um, Lawrence of Arabia in a big movie theater, mm. and it starts off, and there is music. There's mm. the overture. 
and you sit and you listen oh, to the yeah, overture. Oh, yeah, that was part of the, uh, part of the whole experience. Experience. Yes. You listen to all of that, and then it begins. And then there was actually an intermission. Mm. And it, there's, you know, it appears on the screen, intermission, and everybody goes off. The men go off, and everyone actually went off for a smoke because this mm. was, I don't know what year it was, but everybody still smoked and get more popcorn or something like uh-huh. that. And the sort of one per, part one and part two is kind of part of that. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it is it is in fact um, a rather long movie. But it does the pacing is so nice that it's really good, yeah, yeah, that you don't really find it sort of tiresome ever. Yeah, because they could have cut it down a lot by cutting out the sort of cityscape scenes. But I yeah. found they really punctuated the movie well. They, they did. gave you a bit of a breathing space between the kind of the manicness of the of the scenes and you get to see the seasons change and you know it shows that moscow is a busy you know kind of dirty hard-working city but also kind of beautiful at the same Lyrical. time yeah 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 it's true i'm glad you mentioned that because i had wanted to mention that as well that when i see that i think well that's the moscow i came to mm. absolutely that's exactly what it was in fact i came in 1978 when the movie came out so it was literally that year yeah yeah, yeah. um it was and... so weird seeing the city without like advertising everywhere i mean of yeah. course i've seen other movies set in moscow from this era but none of them have spent this much time just kind of like you know looking around yeah yeah it did have that sort of i think it that and the music which was some of it was sung by the main characters some of it wasn't um but it really does have this um sense of this is moscow 1978 you know, this is the kind of music people were listening to. This is how they dressed. This is how they acted. This is what was fashionable. These are sort of, this is bad behavior. This is good behavior. You kind of get a very full sense of that. Mm. Actually, this is a complete non sequitur, but mm-hmm. it, it t- t- uh, talking of bad behavior, I guess. A thing I noticed about Yuri's surname, I thought that Summer was... Summer Kowalov, kind of, yeah. Yes. Sort of praise himself, praise oneself, so, sort yeah, of. Self, self, <laughs> yeah, self-praise self, one. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I, okay, I'm glad that I had, had actually got that right. And, and that's a bit of a, like, a Russian kind of writerly tradition as well, because um, Dostoevsky was fond of, of choosing those sorts of names, you know, the sort of slightly... Yeah. A slightly improbable, like the most famous one being Raskolnikov, because you know Raskol is a schism, mm-hmm. right? Yes, uh, uh-huh. yes. So, so I I enjoyed the fact that my Russian was good enough to go. Ha! His name is 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 hinting what sort of a guy this might be. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I thought it was also interesting. The names, some of them were what they call Gabriashi, you know, sort of mm. names that have meaning, and some aren't. In fact, we don't know what Vera Verichka's last name was. She's just Verichka. Yes. And we don't know what Shura's last name was. Olga is kind of a standard last name, Rizhova. Mm. Um, but Lyudmila Prokofievna and Anatoly Yefremovich, um, you know, you get the sense even from that their parents, their father's names were kind of old fashioned names. So yeah. it also tells you perhaps um, both of them were from sort of poor or not kind of elite families. But mm. Yuri Grigorievich Samachvalov, you know, you can tell he was kind of 
probably from a high-class family to begin with. So even that, you sort of get a little bit of a sense of it. Mm, interesting. Um, but uh, I was slightly distraught to learn that there was actually a remake of this movie uh, in 2011 called Office Romance Our Time, at least was the English translation, and... It turns out that the uh, Novoseltsev role was played by a certain uh, Vladimir, at least that's what he was going by as his first name back then, Zelensky. Oh, God, how <laughs> who, funny. Yeah, who is now um, Ukrainian president. So I Is just that thought, right? I never, yeah, I never actually, saw the movie because I almost him. always hate remakes. Mm, yeah, they've done a few over the years of, like, Soviet classics, yeah. haven't they? Yeah, so... Uh, um, Ooh, how yeah, fascinating. I know. Um, yes, uh, of course, he's, because he's Ukrainian president, he's uh, Volodymyr, uh, uh-huh. the Ukrainian for. But I I checked I checked it, I looked at it, and it's like, yeah, that is the same guy. He's just, oh, you know, isn't that wild? nearly 10. So bizarre. And, of course, you know, he's probably slightly more uh, prominent in uh, US news than the uh, president of Ukraine would normally be in uh, news coverage. But, yeah, I thought that was just Wow. Bizarre. Now now I have to see that. I have <laughs> they made the other sort of famous film from that era is Ironia Sudbi, yes, Irony which, of Fate. And yeah, that was also remade. As well. Blech, you know, which yeah. I am like I absolutely refuse to take a look at it. Um, fair, fair. But same leading man. I actually quickly wanted to mention that is probably should have mentioned it when we were talking about acting, is that they, yeah. this was the only thing uh, only the second thing I'd seen Andre Mikov in, and mm-hmm. it's just a very different character. So it completely was, different. Yeah, it and was he's great a very appreciating good, his range. Yeah, he's also just a really he's really kind, he's sort of an amazing actor because you see him um the sort of nebbishy little guy and then he gets mm. drunk and he tries to sort of show off and he's hilarious and then you see him uh with his kids being kind of mom and then you see him very ner- as this very nervous suitor when he comes, there's again, when he has this very awkward conversation with her at the table, he spends the whole time clutching this box of chocolates to his chest, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, almost like a, almost like Linus's blanket and Snoopy. Yes, he's, he's sort of, he can't sort of give it up and he doesn't know. And then, he's, then he hands it to her, these are chocolates. And she's like, oh, yes, yes, chocolates inside. I sort of guessed that or something like that. <laughs> and then you see him sort of get very annoyed and they have this huge fight. He's a very versatile actor. He was just a wonderfully versatile actor for not being sort of conventionally handsome. You know, he's got this sort of round face and this kind of Mm. slightly pug nose, you know. But really, the acting in the movie is kind of spectacular, I think. Yeah. um, Actually, going going to the the remake, I saw like about two minutes of it. And one Uh of the things that was kind of terrible was that they'd done that thing of casting a conventionally attractive woman as the Ludmilla character, Mm. you know, without wishing to be, um, you know, unkind about uh, Alyssa Freindlich. She was just Mm. normal looking, you know? Yes, yes. Um, Whereas the person that they had cast was clearly like your sort of stereotypical, like Russian beauty with... You know, very just not make without makeup very, or something. Very yeah. skinny, yeah, yeah, uh, and with big, big glasses and terrible clothes. And it was just yeah. like, 
Eh. Oh, come on. Come yeah, on. Come on. Yeah. 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 Because the, the casting in this, she's a normal looking person yeah, that and they've you, made and you look do, worse. You do kind of believe that she was a very smart woman and and she tells this sort of terrible story where she says that she had a a suitor, but he ended up marrying her best friend. And then so she got rid of all of her friends because it was so traumatic and she didn't yeah. want it to happen again. And um, you see, she has a very nice apartment, and but she, you know, was very sort of smart and didn't learn anything about sort of, you know, nice clothes or sort of looking attractive. That was that just wasn't part of her career path. You know, and you see her, she's always going off to the ministry with her briefcase and her thick glasses. Um, it is exactly, again, in a weird way, even though everything is a little bit heightened and everything is a little bit exaggerated, but she's a believable character. Mm, um, yeah. And when she dresses up, you know, she's like worried that maybe she doesn't quite look nice. You know, she's mm, she's yeah, not yeah. sure if she's figured it out right. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bit of a weird comparison, but there's something with her backstory that makes her almost Soviet 1970s female version of Ebenezer Scrooge in a weird way. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she's developed this kind of like callous exterior but she wasn't always that way it was just no. you know something and she, that's why she and... sort of breaks down and talks you mm. know and sort of admits that um that she sort of doesn't want to be this way but that's sort of how it how it turned out that mm. you know she's it's not that she's so married to her work it's that she doesn't have any friends or anything to do in the evenings which is mm. why she doesn't go home and she's sort um, of ov- overcompensating yeah yeah yeah, I mean, I guess you could, if you wanted to be a bit more critical about the movie, you could say it's the attitude to, you know, women in a high position is a bit odd in the sense that it's kind of almost suggesting that it's important to look somewhat glamorous. I don't know. Maybe that's well, unfair. Well, no, I think it, I think it was just, you know, it was 1978. So yeah. I think there was... <laughs> Things like, were a certain but way. There, but what is always interesting is it was 1978, but it's also sort of part of the culture that, mm, yeah. um, that this was a culture. Now it's actually worse in some ways. Where I wanted to ask about that. Yeah, women really were the heads of factories um, mm, and they yeah, really yeah. were chief doctor and they really were working in the ministry. And, yeah, you well, know, they had very, very high positions. Yeah. But at the same time, there was always an emphasis on looking after we got through the early Soviet period. Mm. You know, there was always an emphasis on you might be the director of a factory that employed, you know, 27,000 people or something like that. But you still would dress nicely and know how to make pirushki. Um, mm. And I remember even... Oh, how many years ago? Five years ago, six or seven years ago, I interviewed the head of Transero, whose name has just slipped out of my mind, of course. But she was the head of this billion and billion dollar airlines. And she was very, very lovely hair, lovely skin, beautiful clothing, appropriate, but sort of, you know, very nice suits and things like that. And she used to say, you have to pay attention to three things. 
Mm. Um, work, your family, and yourself. Oh. <laughs> you know, and so she really how did. How does anyone be, cope? <laughs> how does anyone cope? But she would, you know, there are times when you don't have to take care of your family, mm. where you go off to some spa for, you know, a week and get pounded or whatever you do at sort of fancy spas in mm. Switzerland or wherever she would go. But there was a, you know, this sort of idea that you could be a tough businesswoman, you could be a wonderful family person, but you also had to um, do what you wanted to do mm. and take care of yourself sort of physically. And that really has always just been a part of this culture. Mm. So, yes, I mean, the whole sort of the joke is based on kind of now we would say outdated sort of models where mm. you know he's the the um non ambitious man you know he's too womanly he takes care of the kids he wears an apron you know he's not a go-getter and she's this kind of ball busting you know tough woman um but at the time playing with those stereotypes was kind of interesting mm. you know i mean it's still it's i would say it's you know it's 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 funny <laughs> yeah well, it's funny and and it's still you know somewhat thought provoking because in the supposedly progressive west there's still you know big problems in terms of having an equal number of of women in senior positions in companies and you know the company yeah. culture suffers from not having that that input yeah um, okay uh should we because i'm nearly I think done pretty yeah i think we've sort of covered it uh-huh <laughs> no. All in all, I hardly, if you, dear listeners, are interested in knowing what late Soviet life was, this is a fabulous film to get a sense of it. Even if you really don't understand the Russian or you are having trouble following the subtitles or whatever, even just visually, you can get a very good sense mm. of... Um, I think really the the kind of a lot of the good and the bad in mm. in you know working in a fairly prestigious business in Moscow in 1978. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for for recommending this film. It was it was on my list to do at some point, but yeah, kind of it was great to have, you know have it moved up the priorities because I I really really enjoyed it. So. Yeah, it's very the the thing about this is it's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> Even just visually funny, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. It's a very very enjoyable movie. Awesome. Um now this is normally where I would ask, would you recommend this <laughs> this movie uh, to other people? Yes. But that's clearly redundant. Um, so what I was going to ask instead was, for people who watch this and enjoy it, what else could they seek out that's in a similar vein? A slightly similar vein. Another movie that I like a lot, I think it was a little bit earlier, is called Pasimenim Abstajatelstvam. And it was directed by Korinov. Um, and it is, it also has a couple of scenes, one with a, uh, do we call it a logoped, a speech therapist who has a oh, lisp yeah. that is, you know, the first time again I saw it, I just could not stop laughing. <laughs> um, it's about sort of, you know, kind of a mixed family is what we would mm. call it today. Um, older people get married, have kids from previous marriages, grandchildren, all of this kind of thing. And it's a very, very 
also funny movie um, that gives you another kind of slice of life. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely have to, to check that one out as well. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you, Michelle, so much for, for joining us. My pleasure. But before you go, for folks wanting to hear more from you uh where would they where would they find you online oh you'll always find me at the moscow times if you open up the moscow times and look at the top menu running across you'll see podcasts and you can click on podcasts and you will find um over a year's worth of them i do them just about every week um and you can also read the column uh, which is helpful when you're trying to figure out the grammar as well. So you can always find me there. Yes, uh, that's highly recommended. As I said in the beginning, first came across your your columns in the newspapers, but so it's really nice to have like the, the kind of more portable <laughs> version as well. Yeah, and it, the whole point is, for years people always wanted me to put the accents in, mm. and we just couldn't do it with the typeface. Sure. It just was impossible to do. But the real reason why we started doing the podcast is just because you can hear it. You know, yeah. I can say it, and, and that's where you can figure out where the stress is uh, yeah. in the words, which is always so difficult to to learn in Russian. Yeah. Well, awesome. And then you're also on Twitter as well. I am. I'm a fairly frequent tweeter, being yes. a birdie and all. Yuck, yuck, <laughs> of yuck. Of course. <laughs> Indeed, it was almost inevitable. <laughs> well, thanks again. My pleasure. I had a really nice time talking about this with you, and I'm and it was a good excuse to sit down and watch one of my favorite movies again. So thank you. Yeah, so um, thank you for listening. До свидания, folks. До свидания. Пока-пока. So that's it for this episode. But before I go, I'd like to thank Sasha Ilukovich and the Highly Skilled Migrants for the use of their song Cold in our intro. You can find that song and the rest of their back catalogue on Bandcamp and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us by leaving a rating at Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. That second one, Podchaser, even lets you rate individual episodes. So if this episode particularly stood out to you, you can let other listeners know that you enjoyed it. Recommending the show on social media is hugely helpful as well. If you can spare a moment or two to do that, it would really make my day. Thank you, thank you very much. Speaking of social media... Please find us and say hi on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can also drop us a line at roosfilesunite at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, take care of yourselves and bye for now. (laughs) 